Hello and welcome to Water Q&A, Global Water Forum's monthly dive into the challenges of water governance in the 21st century. I'm Jesper Svensson, your host. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Sam Giel, the executive editor of China Dialogue and an associate fellow of Chatham House, about how the Chinese Communist Party is influencing the development of the Mekong River. Why are the water levels in the Mekong River, why are they so low right now? It's not um, immediately clear what the um, whether there's a single cause for this, um, but it clearly seems related to um, the rapid buildup of um, large hydro dam building um, uh, on on the river, particularly on the lower sections. Um, so, um, over the past uh, few decades, uh, China has quite heavily dammed the um, upstream of the Mekong, which they refer to as the Lansang. Um, and there's some uh, 10, 11 large dams on the, the upper section. Um, but very recently, there's been uh, a number of um, uh, mainstream uh, dams come online uh, on the main stem of the, the, the lower Mekong. Um, and these undoubtedly have had some impact, but that also has been um, uh, combined with hydrological conditions. And I'm not sure that beyond that we can say really um, with a lot of certainty exactly what the, uh, what the causes are. What the implications are, of course, are, is, uh, are, are much more um, obvious, which is to say um, a really um, uh, concerning situation for food, and water security in lower Mekong countries, and um, a real spotlight being shone on the um, very large-scale uh, hydroengineering plants of certain countries on the Mekong, particularly Laos, uh, which has um, a plan to become the so-called battery of Southeast Asia with a very large cascade of um, large hydropower dams on the on the main stem of the Mekong. So um, it's sort of cast into relief a very long-running uh, situation um, which has changed quite dramatically very recently um, due to um, some of these large dams coming online, but also, I'd argue, due to the um, rapid institutionalization of Chinese power and, and influence on the river through some of the regional institutions that manage transboundary impacts. Um, and that's really where my interest in the, um, in the Mekong uh, sort of starts. Um, I'm not someone with a hydrological background. My interest um, is as a China watcher and as someone who's worked on uh, China's environmental policies, and environmental civil society for um, uh, over a decade. And um, I'm particularly interested in the um, implications of China's Lansang Mekong Cooperative Framework, um, so-called LMC, um, that has been established in the last few years, and how it might be um, impacting um, the kind of patterns of development in the region, and particularly the environmental implications of, of that um, framework, which go beyond water. Um, but certainly have quite profound implications, I think, for the river um, and therefore for food security as well as um, energy and, uh, and, and water 
and uh, economic and livelihood prospects, uh, and indeed the, the development model that's pursued uh, through the Lower Mekong Basin. I tried to ask uh, the Minister of Water Resources these questions I'm going to ask you now, but uh, uh, they didn't want to, they didn't give me a yes or no. What would you say are China's objectives for the Lansa Mekong Cooperation Initiative? And what are the objectives of the lower Mekong countries, given that they already have a regional forum, the Mekong River Commission, to which China and Myanmar hold observer status? I think it's, it, it's a really interesting question, and I think there's multiple um, uh, motives, multiple drivers for the development of this um, uh, of this forum, um, and many of them go beyond water. Um, so, to, to I suppose to give the, the context, maybe we should start with the uh, the Mekong River Commission, the, the MRC, um, which was um, established in '95. Based on the uh, Mekong River Agreement uh, between the uh, uh, the four lower Mekong countries, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and, and Vietnam, um, with uh, Myanmar and China as observers, um, and it's based in, uh, in in Vientiane in Laos and Phnom Penh in Cambodia. Um, the MRC has, um, you know, in, in, uh, is based in law and in theory should be sort of get governing the transboundary. Uh, impacts on the river, but it has a real kind of uh, flaw, which is to say that it hasn't. Its decisions really haven't proven enforceable, um, and the the starkest um, uh, illustration of that is the fact that in 2010 it urged a 10-year moratorium on mainstream hydropower dams, um, and that's just pr- proven unenforceable and. Um, uh, Lao in particular has gone ahead with uh, construction of dams like Zayaburi, um, uh, which you know, came online at the end of last year. So then in 2015, you get the establishment of this Lansang Mekong uh, cooperative framework, um, which the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi um, characterized quite aptly as um, a so-called down-to-earth bulldozer in contrast to um, a quote, a high-profile pro- high talk shop. In other words, it's seen as being a really um, a, a major kind of development vehicle um, which can uh, not only um, uh, advance uh, China's particular objectives when it comes to transboundary water governance, but also much wider a kind of economic um, and uh, security and geopolitical aims. Um, when it comes to... To, the, to those sort of wider aims, um, you should look at, at the, the kind of founding um, principles of the LMC to understand these. And it's it's actually founded along three planks. One is economic and, uh, and sustainable development. Another is uh, foreign and security exchange. And, and another is people-to-people exchange. Um, so this is a much wider remit than just water. And it also mirrors the um, founding pillars of ASEAN. Um, and uh, for many, what this implies really is that it, it um, has within it a kind of geopolitical element, which is to say it creates a kind of zone of, of Chinese influence within ASEAN um, and, and therefore, you know, potentially um, undermines ASEAN to some extent. It also um, has a, uh, while it has a sort of multilateral um, appearance, 
um, it allows for strong bilateral relationships to occur at the same time. And those are particularly strong between China and Laos and China and Cambodia, both um, poorer countries which um, appreciate the support in being able to um, uh, sort of step up to and, and, uh, and challenge Vietnam and Thailand where they need to, uh, the two richer and more powerful countries, which also have um, more complicated relationships with China and are far less dependent on um, uh, China for financial support and so on. So there's a sort of complex geopolitical element to it um, and several drivers. One um, is an economic one, which is really, um, you can see through the whole of the so-called Belt and Road Initiative. Belt and Road Initiative is, you know, talked about a lot since 2013 in China. You know, large infrastructure spending plan um, uh, where China's, you know, financing development around the world. But it's not a single master plan. It doesn't, there's no single institution that defines the Belt and Road Initiative. What the Belt and Road Initiative really is, is an excess of um, capital and labor and the creation of an escape, uh, an escape valve. Um, to sort of channel that into new projects in order to to um, uh, to deal with that kind of surplus uh, surplus capital, and um, in the um, Mekong region, I think that is mainly channeled um, uh, uh, into a range of projects, including large infrastructure projects like uh, large hydropower, but also road building, special economic zones, um, uh, the uh, large rail project, and. Many of these are described as being um, signature projects of the LMC. So these big LMC meetings um, tend to come with large promises of loans, of signature infrastructure projects, this sort of whole range of, of economic drivers. Um, there's also clearly security elements as well. Um, some of those are the kind of the, this like very broad geopolitical play that I mentioned. Some of it also, I think, is about um, uh, energy security and specifically um, China's concern with uh, avoiding the so-called Malacca dilemma. Um, there's a you know, choke point in maritime Southeast Asia through which about 80% of um, oil uh, trades, uh, seaborne oil trades moves. Um, and China since the 90s has regarded this as a critical security vulnerability um, because this strait is um, uh, patrolled by the US Navy. Um, and creating a sort of diversified routes for the transit of goods and particularly of, of energy um, has always been an important um, aim of security planners in China and creating a more navigable waterway um, along the Mekong and, um, and having, um, having the, the kind of um, resources and power to achieve that um, is also clearly part of, of creating a kind of a sub-region that is, uh, that, that is under greater Chinese influence. And I think that plays also into the kind of broader security kind of um, planning that goes into this. But when it comes down to, um, to water, I think clearly there is um, a common interest between um, the Chinese um, uh, dam builders and uh, elements of the state that, are, that want to support them economically and a lot of elites in um, uh, in Mekong countries who are happy to, to see these projects go ahead. Not, not all elites and uh, not everyone is happy about it, obviously. Um, and, you know, a number of deals have clearly been inked to try and accelerate that, um, the, uh, the building of those hydro dams. 
And from the perspective of uh, the Secretariat of the uh, Lantang Mekong Cooperative Framework, it seems like there is a, um, uh, a distrust of um, the ways in which transboundary water governance has been uh, handled um, until now. And specifically, there's a sort of a challenge to the uh, norms under the uh, UN Water Courses Convention that you can actually see in the in the writing and in the, the statements of the um, uh, chairman of the Secretariat in Beijing. And specifically, he has a concern about um, the ways in which um, the the kind of norms around reasonable and equitable usage that, that govern the UN Water Courses Convention in his mind, are biased against upstream states uh, like China. Um, and that the um, establishment of a, of a new institution could instead emphasize uh, what he talks about as reciprocity uh, between states. So there's a, a range of different uh, kind of discourses and, um, and actors and drivers that work from Chinese state-owned enterprises, which I think are a very important element of the kind of Chinese state capitalist project as it um, exports uh, um, development to um, Southeast Asia in a kind of broadly neoliberal developmentalist model. You've got kind of a strong security element that's um, that's looking at, at a kind of geopolitical play in the context of a waning, um, waning U.S. power um, and a sort of a, a changing world order. Um, and then you've got more specific kind of concerns over uh, essentially how to move ahead with large hydropower, which is clearly you know very um, strongly favoured by the uh, Chinese state and you know, has been um, since uh, you know uh, pretty much since time immemorial. So there's a sort of a range of actors, um, and when you can get to the ground and really ask what the LMC is, it it does become slightly more nebulous because it can be all of these things. And really what it represents is um, a very rich and therefore powerful um, China. How are the different uh, government participants represented within the LMC dialogues? And what are their functions of the secretariat? All of this becomes quite unclear because uh, it's a fairly, it's a fairly nebulous organization. Um, but what it does have is a, a, a very uh, regular drumbeat of um, high-level meetings um, at various levels, including foreign ministers, um, uh, water ministers, and so on. I think officially um, the, it, it's, it, it's about uh, connecting the water ministers of various countries, but there's also um, uh, a range of other summits um, Uh, including uh, including ones more for, focused on foreign policy and economic policy, um, cyber security, media cooperation, um, uh, people to people exchanges. So there's actually a whole whole range of different um, types of of summits and meetings, and it's really unclear exactly what the purpose of these are. However, they tend to come with a series of new announcements of. Um, of large-scale loans, of signature development projects, um, of um, uh, uh, of gifts, of, of aid. Um, so they're clearly um, backed with some significant promises of spending, um, typically from the Chinese side. Um, but uh, in terms of actually how the organization functions, 
it's fairly unclear that um, thus far actually what the um, uh, what it looks like structurally. And as I say, it sort of has this nebulous quality which allows it to at once kind of appear multilateral on the surface, but then in practice, I think. Um, it's difficult to escape the fact that it's it's pretty well determined by uh, China's existing foreign policy, which has um, a, uh, a uh, well clearly bases it um, in in Beijing, and that's where the Secretariat is, and I think where the sort of locus of, of power of the LMC is, um, and also means that there's a number of powerful and important bilateral relationships that um, uh, that exist at the same time. Um, like I say, between uh, China and Cambodia, between China and Laos, um, and uh, you know, to some extent, as I understand it, probably between you know different um, elite factions or interests uh, in uh, in Thailand and um, uh, um, Vietnam as well. But but I'm I'm not quite sure that that the dynamics of that are very straightforward. Do we know who is the most powerful actor from the Chinese side? Is it mostly run by the Minister of Water Resources? Is it the Minister of Foreign Affairs, or is it, or is it just fragmented? Or do we know anything about that? It's quite fragmented. Uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, the LMC initially was was proposed um, as a Thai initiative once, um, in, in in a kind of uh, in an early form. And it was dominated for quite uh, a while by researchers in Yunnan, um, and uh, at one point was very connected to um, the Yunnan provincial government's um, kind of foreign policy in Southeast Asia. Um, Yunnan, as a as a you know, as a province, has um, a real interest in connectivity with Southeast Asia, and you know was a sort of early mover in what became the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and certainly also what became the Lansang Mekong Cooperative Framework. So at one point, there was a kind of um, a locus of, of power, as it were, in Yunnan around a number of institutes there and universities and researchers and kind of government-linked researchers. Um, but the power in recent years seems to have shifted to uh, another group, I suppose a rival group in Beijing, uh, based around the Ministry of Water Resources, Um And uh, and and that seems to be kind of where the where the power sits, um, as far as anyone can tell. Uh, but but as I say, um, when you have a, a kind of a, a high level leader summit with foreign ministers and so on, clearly that also then outstrips the um, power of the Ministry of Water Resources. So that um, you're really then getting into the kind of black box of uh, elite decision making in China, which is quite uh, quite opaque when you get to the to the top certainly fragmented you know um characterized by bargaining between elite institutions but fairly impenetrable to the outside observer can you can you please outline the projects that have been undertaken under the LMC since it was initiated in 2014 well so um each year the LMC Leaders Summit comes with these big spending pledges from China. So in 2016, um, there was 1.6 billion in preferential loans and 10 billion in uh, US dollars in credit to low Mekong Basin countries. In 2017, 1.1 billion dollars in concessional loans and 5 billion in credit for 45 early harvest projects. Um, and in 2018, 12 billion dollars in loans and grants 
a five-year plan of action and 132 Chinese-funded cooperation projects. Um, and some of the so-called signature projects um, that have been sort of variously included in the media reports around this include the Kunming to Bangkok Road, the China-Lao Railway, high-speed high speed railway, um, which uh, is, is supposed to link Kunming in, uh, in Yunnan province with Singapore eventually. Um, in Vietnam, you've got industrial parks uh, like uh, the Longjiang Industrial Park. Um, you've got a, a special economic zone in Laos, um, the Sihanoukville Special Economic Zone in Cambodia. Um, so all of these um, theoretically are signature projects of the LMC. Um, and, you know, but, but as I say, much of this is sort of like the Belt and Road Initiative where existing projects that uh, might have gone ahead um, anyway through a bilateral cooperation, through a private um, enterprise, um, can be retroactively labelled as LMC or as LMC signature projects uh, in order to give them particular legitimacy or even to um, help them to get the um, access to Chinese loans and finance that they need um, and, and to kind of have that signed off at a high level. Um, so that's, um, that's a sort of um, uh, characteristic um, of, of a lot of these projects. Um, even though it clearly shapes the, um, uh, the future of hydroelectric power um, in the region, um, and, and, and I think it does have a lot to do with the sort of um, the dynamics we'll see playing out around, for example, Laos' plans to become the Battery of Asia. Um, as far as I know, um, the, the, the large hydro projects that are going ahead aren't necessarily badged as LMC, but, but, but I, might, uh, I, I might be wrong about that. But I'm, I'm not sure about um, the extent to which um, those are necessarily being um, sort of labelled uh, in that way. Certainly there are a number of, of, of smaller hydro, hydrological projects that are, um, but the large hydroelectric projects thus far, I don't know, are actually being uh, described in that way. Uh, how about what co what cooperation activities has the LMC undertaken with the Mekong River Commission? Um, in theory, um, uh, quite a few, um, and uh, and and certainly, sort of both sides are um, are, are quite um, are quite keen to publicly say that they, that they've established a kind of cordial relationship and that they see. Um, each other as as complementary, um, but in practice, it seems it's very difficult to understand how that could be um, the case uh, because the, the the kind of um, the conventional wisdom in the Lao Mekong Basin is effectively that the LMC has has eclipsed the uh, remit of the the MRC and made it very difficult for the MRC to to kind of um, maintain its um, already waning legitimacy um, and, and certainly sort of poses a challenge. Um, and, and as a result, you know, any kind of formal cooperation that, that, that might have been mooted, I'm not sure really how, how productive it has been. Um, certainly I haven't, I, I haven't seen anything um, that's, uh, that's very uh, substantive. Um, the, 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 the real Uh, key would be would of course be data sharing um, and as far as I know um, 
that's that's somewhere that the LMC is is more likely poised to eclipse the MRC rather than to uh, help it because the LMC I think will be happy to share Chinese data on its own terms and and to use that in order to elevate the importance of the LMC rather than to um, support the MRC uh, by um, allowing it access to Chinese data. In March 2016, water was released from the Jinghong Dam following following a request from Vietnam to China to provide drought relief. Do you expect that China can provide water services to downstream countries in the future with through formal processes within the LMC for such activities? I think that I think that's a that's a big um, element of what the LMC is going to want to. Um, so to advertise about itself and about its value and that kind of image of hydro diplomacy, I think is, um, is one that um, China is very keen to see um, uh, on the world stage, um, but it's controversial locally. Um, when I was um, uh, looking at, at, at some of these projects in uh, Northern Thailand, um, I spoke to villagers who had um, experienced that as a as a very um, uh, uh, destructive event, um, because according to them, uh, they weren't actually uh, warned about the uh, the release of water, and from their perspective, it wasn't a particularly dry season. It was um, it was it was dry um, in um, you know in an entirely expected kind of um, uh fashion um you know with with the kind of um cyclical flood pulses that that of course uh, communities are very used to working with um in traditional fashion um and at the time they'd actually prepared for um festivals along the riverbanks um and uh and and of course were attending riverbank gardens and so on and a lot of that was apparently unexpectedly washed away because they weren't given um warning before the um the sluice gates and so on were opened um So from certainly from some other countries or at least other communities' perspectives, um, that was a, a, a badly handled kind of event and maybe even um, uh, wasn't necessary. Although, um, you know, I'm sure there are other communities in Vietnam who, who might have appreciated the, um, the gesture. Um, what it does point to, of course, is the need for, you know, uh, early warning systems, excellent communication, transboundary institutions that really work and are trusted and, and have um, resources for, for communication um, and for, you know, open participatory deliberation. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, if the LMC can provide that, of course, that would be a fantastic thing. Um, and, you know, it does point to the kind of um, diplomacy one would want to see on, on the river. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that um, once one digs into that particular uh, case, it necessarily tells us um, or it gives us a kind of positive image of what's uh, what's coming down the line or, um, in fact, kind of uh, points us to where there's a lot of work to be done, both both with regard to the MRC and, and the LMC in terms of creating more transparent and uh, and open and and uh, consultative uh, institutions 
So uh, how how are farmers and civil society groups in downstream companies countries able to engage with the LMC? Uh, thus far, they're really not, as far as I can tell. Um, you know, the uh, um, again, it's not to, it's not to say that the MRC is is uh, is a paragon of virtue on this respect either. Um, but I think thus far, there's no real way for civil society groups to realistically. Um, Uh, be uh, have a voice uh, within LMC systems because it's not sufficiently institutionalized uh, or hasn't created any institutional channels for their participation. Um, there's no grievance mechanisms. There's no um, there's no method for for review or for um, uh, for consultation um, because it doesn't it doesn't really have a formal um, existence on the ground in that way. It's something that um, civil society institutions are very aware of because, as I say, it's really um, almost a byword for Chinese um, investment and, uh, and, and influence, uh, but it's not a, um, uh, an institution that has any obvious way into to it in terms of um, any kind of formal channels for uh, consultation or petition or participation or grievance. Can you tell us, uh, us a little bit more about your own experiences uh, engaging with local communities and uh, civil society groups in the Mekong region? Well, sure. So, I mean, I'm I'm really interested in this uh, topic uh, because my own work uh, sort of started by being focused on environmental journalism and activism in China. Um, I've been working on this um, theme since around 2006, 2007, um, uh, when I was uh, part of the, you know, one of the um, founding um, members of, uh, of the people that set up China Dialogue, um, where we were working and continue to work on uh, China's um, uh, approach to all environmental issues, um, but particularly how to create a more constructive bilingual dialogue between China and the rest of the world on environment and climate change issues. Um, including transboundary water. So it's always been a, a, a strong um, issue of ours and, and one that we've written about and edited and commissioned um, uh, reports on since that time. Um, and my own research came to focus on um, China's environmental journalists and the role of the green public sphere in China, uh, particularly in the, the last decade. Um, and um, over the years, as... Um, the civil society space in China has shrunk and China's own um, uh, investments overseas have grown. I've become quite interested in how China's civil society engages with its overseas impacts, as well as how recipient countries um, of Chinese investment um, make sense of, of, uh, of new projects and indeed of the um, positive you know, potential and opportunities for Uh, a low carbon transition, or indeed, um, a kind of greener, more socially just, more sustainable models of development that Chinese um, investment could support. And in particular, I'm really interested in the potential of a greener Belt and Road Initiative in the Lower Mekong region. I think it's there's there's real potential um, that China could harness if it wanted to. Um, China's a leading um, uh, producer, investor, exporter. Um, installer of uh, renewable energy. They're, they have the, the largest um, capacity, bar none, on solar PV 
a lot of experience in using solar PV for um, serving the needs of the poor, for increasing access to electricity and um, new markets. So they have enormous potential, actually, to um, create very positive development outcomes, uh, which are very much in line with creating a you know, clean and more resilient model of growth um, in the low Mekong region. But, um, you know, that's not necessarily going to be the case if, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative and the low Mekong um, uh, framework is used largely as an escape valve for um, highly polluting energy intensive industry. Um, and the, the risk is that um, instead what we see is, is just the um, flow of finance into a new coal-fired infrastructure, as we're seeing in, in Vietnam. There's a number of uh, coal plants which are being financed by uh, Chinese companies. In, um, in Laos, of course, you've got the risk um, associated with building large hydropower dams. The, the risks there for me are particularly the enormous risk to um, food security posed by um, uh, uh, the, the dam's effect on fisheries, um, which I think are, uh, could be um, really devastating for, uh, uh, for livelihoods and for um, uh, food security, human security in the region. Um, fish is obviously the, the major source of protein uh, for uh, everyone in the Lower Mekong Basin, um, and uh, large dams could be very destructive um, in that regard. They also um, could be very destructive for lower Mekong uh, agriculture in terms of the impact on sediment. Um, and of course, um, increased variability of flows is also difficult in terms of managing water. And all of this is compounded by the effects of climate change, um, which we're seeing are having uh, profound effects in the lower Mekong Delta already. Um, in places like Vietnam are very exposed to as, as low-lying, low-coastal elevation zones are very exposed to things like storm surge, um, increased salinity, um, sea level rise. Um, and all of this um, is, is already very complex if it's not even further complexified by the building of large hydropower dams and, and other sorts of um, uh, hydrological infrastructure, including um, also uh, rapids blasting and, and uh, widening for navigational purposes and so on. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of work going on in the river that I think could be quite um, uh, destructive if it if it um, is carried out in kind of in a, in a very uh, top down fashion that that doesn't take um, account of very complex ecological circumstances and and their kind of interactions with um, uh, all kinds of different social needs. Um, I also think that that it's going to be very important in terms of how it plays out um, with regard to uh, the kind of economic model that um, uh, our communities uh, would like to see in their, on their kind of uh, inflection point in terms of their, their development. Uh, China thus far has favoured the, the special economic zone model, um, which is um, one that in southern China is sort of in particular is very much associated with uh, China's export-oriented development boom in the 90s. But in uh, the Mekong region is mainly associated with um, the creation of um, uh, these sort of enclaves typically for um, real estate speculation and uh, casinos and gambling. Um, and it, as, as a result, very unpopular. Uh, they also typically are um, um, 
uh, associated with sort of um, uh, money laundering and other sorts of uh, sort of criminal um, uh, activity. So there's a lot of sort of big questions coming up. And as a result, quite a lot of pushback to the LMC and to, to BRI projects in Southeast Asia in the last couple of years. And we see that most notably in the proliferation of um, uh, new initiatives, sometimes actually led by countries like Thailand. You have something called the called ACMEX, which is a Thai-led multilateral initiative that um, incorporates the five countries of the lower Mekong, that is to say Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar, um, so excludes uh, China, um, and um, uh, is supposed to represent the uh, Irrawaddy, uh, the Chao Phraya, and the, the Mekong River um, uh, countries um, in a supposedly a sort of uh, another multilateral um, uh, uh, sort of regional framework. Um, is it a bank? Not really quite clear. Is it a fund? Again, it's not quite clear. Does it really have uh, enough support to challenge, say, the Belt and Road Initiative or the LMC? No, it's quite small. But what it does sort of indicate is uh, a number of, of kind of different ways in which there's some kind of rethink and, and, and pushback on uh, on the, the particular kind of model that the LMC has uh, proposed. And maybe the most interesting um, signal uh, which has only come in very recent days, is that um, Cambodia has uh, said it will uh, it will shelve its uh, its hydropower projects on the main stem of the Mekong, um, and we'll see. And, and it's unclear to me exactly what's um, um, uh, what led to that decision, uh, exactly what it's going to signal, but it's certainly a very interesting signal. Um, it's come right at a moment when uh, we're kind of uh, all on lockdown because of coronavirus, so. Um, it's very unclear to me um, how decisions are being taken and indeed um, how anyone can, can kind of track this quite at the moment, but it's certainly very interesting. A lot of my work in the last few years has um, been um, carried out through workshops, which um, I've organized with partners um, in low Mekong countries with um, Chinese participants and interlocutors um, including at Chulalongkorn University and Mahadol University um, and a number of other kind of um, uh, workshops with regional NGOs and, and uh, international NGOs and partners uh, where we've um, brought together a range of issues, typically uh, looking at the um, implications of the Belt and Road Initiative and, its, and the way it's understood in Southeast Asia. Also, sometimes specifically look at the LMC or looking at um, specific countries like uh, like Myanmar, and typically looking at how a greener um, model of Chinese investment might um, uh, bring about development benefits, um, what sorts of levers and channels might uh, might be used to um, improve the chances of that being of that coming about, um, what kinds of concerns current um, investment uh, investments and projects are uh, raising for communities, um, how their voices might be. Um, uh, amplified um, and uh, a lot of the time we're, we're working with a kind of range of different stakeholders there so from lawyers to um, journalists who are a sort of key constituency for us as people who, who publish high quality journalism uh, to academic experts and, uh, and activists um, even you know for public forum 
groups uh, trying to bring together uh, government officials as well um, and, uh, and people from companies and so on to, to understand the kind of range of different actors that are shaping the future of the river. So how, how should uh, NGOs and downstream communi- communities uh, engage with, uh, with governments or with, 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 one, with uh, the Chinese Communist Party? How, how, what would you say works? What, what does not work? And how, how... Yeah, I, think, I don't think there's an easy way to, to, for them to achieve this, honestly. Um, but I do think that um, there are opportunities to engage with um, their Chinese civil society counterparts. Uh, there are a few uh, international NGOs and uh, regional and Chinese NGOs that uh, do help to kind of bridge some of this uh, this work in interesting ways. Um, there are, for example, Chinese um, uh, domestic environmental NGOs that have tried to internationalize their operations somewhat. Um, Global Environmental Institute, for example, are based in Beijing, um, founded by a very impressive environmental activist called Jin Jiaman. Um, and a lot of her work in recent years has been about um, how um, China's sort of going out policy, as it, as it once was, uh, and now Bolton Road Initiative, can incorporate um, civil society concerns and how Chinese civil society can um, help to increase the kind of capacity to monitor impacts on the ground. Um, and they were involved, for example, in um, helping to um, uh, get some small uh, climate finance projects off the ground in Myanmar. Uh, specifically, these led to some small-scale solar uh, PV uh, projects um, in, in Myanmar that were um, implemented with uh, Chinese government finance and, and, and with the participation of, of various sort of um, levels of the Chinese state. So they're, they're kind of trying to work with uh, Chinese policymakers to uh, come up with with more um, uh, climate and environmentally resilient models of uh, of aid, effectively, um, uh, in cooperation with with NGOs in that case, and also then working with uh, with local, in that case, Burmese NGOs as well. So there are a few cases like that. Um, There's also some of the international NGOs like uh, uh, WWF or Stockholm Environment Institute and so on. I think um, by having um, uh, often we'll have offices in both China and um, uh, uh, and Southeast Asia. Certainly WWF, for example, has has a fairly interesting program that um, I think helps to, to do that bridging work a bit. Oxfam as well. Um, so there are some cases there where, th- where they can hopefully sort of work with some of the local civil society actors um, uh, to uh, perform something of a bridging role. And that's certainly also what China Dialogue aims to do um, in our way. We're we're not a a campaigning NGO, but we are a a platform and hope to um, perform a kind of bridging uh, function in our reporting and in the kind of offline um, workshops and so on that we do. where we um, help to bring some of those voices together and particularly to try and make connections between Chinese interlocutors and, uh, and local actors um, uh, in, uh, in the low Mekong countries. The United Nations Watercourses Convention entered into force in 2014. Do you think the UNWC could provide a framework 
for the MRC and LMC to be merged into into a single river basin organization for the Mekong River? I mean, I think it would be be a wonderful idea, but um, I I'm not sure that um, that's where uh, that that's where the LMC is um, conceptually, and uh, you can see that quite clearly in the um, in the talks that they give, in the, the forums they do uh, participate in, um, and in some of the the work that they've published. Um, uh, specifically, as I mentioned earlier. Um, they do have a critique of the UN Watercourses Convention, um, which is based on the idea that um, it's uh, it's effectively biased against upstream uh, states um, like China, and uh, that instead they are advancing a, a notion of reciprocity between states, um, and that um, this is a, um, a kind of a different um, uh, philosophy of, of uh, water transboundary water governance um, that uh, is, is more reflective in, in their mind of um, how to um, uh, how to deal with a kind of um, uh, a complex transboundary situation in the complex context of climate change. Um, now, whether that's um, realistic or, or feasible is another question. It seems, seems like an, uh, an unusual argument from my perspective, given that um, China is clearly a very powerful upstream hegemon. Um, uh, it, it does seem sort of strange to um, argue that that the UN Watercourses Convention could significantly undermine their um, uh, power. Um, but nevertheless, that's the argument. So I would be surprised if um, the LMC were um, to... Um, uh, uh, sort of see itself as uh, as being particularly aligned with the uh, UN Watercourses Convention, which is much uh, much more closely aligned with the text of the Mekong Agreement, as I understand it, um, uh, to which the, the four um, uh, countries in the uh, MRC are um, are signed up to. Um, of the of those four countries, only Vietnam is, is actually signatory to the. UN Watercourses Convention, but as I understand it, the Mekong Agreement is kind of largely um, uh, um, sort of in line with the, with the norms of the, the uh, UN Watercourses Convention. It's it seems to me that the the Chinese government they view and perceive uh, the MRC as a Western led institution. It's, it's kind of understandable. Um, do you do? Do you see this? Do you see this as a serious game between MRC and LMC? Um, yeah, I think they, they. I'm sure they probably do um, uh, see it that way. Um, it has largely been um, uh, financed by um, foreign country, um, uh, by Western uh, country donors, or, or certainly by foreign donors. Um, there's been a process of trying to kind of indigenize its its funding base, I think is the term they use, uh, to try and essentially get the host countries to really um, take ownership um, and to finance it properly. Um, but that has actually led to it or, or helped to kind of um, scale it down quite significantly because, as I understand it, the host countries haven't really stepped up with that um, support very significantly. 
Um, and so it still does uh, rely to a, to a large extent, I think, on, on Western donors. Um, and um, certainly, yeah, in a, in a context where particularly US, China and um, uh, and and uh, more broadly, kind of uh, China and the West seem to be increasingly at loggerheads. Um, Southeast Asia does feel like something of a um, uh, um, feels uh, like it's 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 very much caught in the the kind of gears of that geopolitical competition, and. Um, Unfortunately, the, the Mekong River is somewhere where you can kind of see that playing out in a way that I think could be um, uh, very um, damaging for um, actually having an effective and democratic and participatory kind of system for decision making on the uh, on the river and, and and for people whose livelihoods you know it really affects. Um, and so, yeah, it is it is dangerous, and I and I wouldn't want to see a zero sum game. I, you know, uh, personally. I would like to see um, uh, different um, uh, frameworks being able to, to coexist, and also I'd like to see really communities being able to uh, to be heard. I mean, I think the most important thing here is that for um, people who rely on the river um, for nutrition, for for, uh, for their livelihoods, for agriculture, for um, uh, for cultural reasons. Um, for them, it really, uh, if they are dispossessed of, uh, of those resources, it's really not going to matter whether that's uh, due to uh, a project that's financed by China, by Japan, by Korea, uh, by Thailand. Um, and and uh, what, you know, the dispossession is, is dispossession. What matters is that we have institutions that can, um, uh, can listen and can support um, different communities and, and make decisions that are actually in the uh, broader interests of both preserving ecological integrity as far as possible, but also um, achieving social justice and and um, and making the right decisions that are reached in uh, in fair and and ideally uh, democratic ways. Okay, thank you very much, Sam, for being on this program with us, and uh, thank you all for listening. Water Q&A is a joint production for Global Water Forum by the Australian National University and University of Oxford. To find out more, go to www.globalwaterforum.org. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook. Just type in Global Water Forum into the search bar.